Hi, and welcome to the See Stalking Clearly podcast. I'm Suki Barker, CEO of the Susie Lamplu Trust, and I will be your host again for today. This podcast series has been recorded in recognition of National Stalking Awareness Week, which takes place in April each year, to raise awareness of stalking and the stories behind the statistics. Stalking is a devastating crime. It's a pattern of unwanted, repeated behaviour, which is underpinned by a fixation and obsession, and can have a substantial impact, both physical, psychological and social. Today, we are going to be discussing the psychological and emotional impact of stalking for victims. And I'm delighted to be joined by my two guests today. Firstly, I'm joined by Dr. Roxanne Agnew-Davis, who is a clinical psychologist and director at Domestic Violence Training. She's also an honorary research fellow at the Centre for Academic Primary Care at Bristol Medical School. Thank you, Roxanne, for joining us. Thank you very much for asking me. I'm delighted to be here. And I'm also joined by Holly. Holly has sadly been stalked, but she's here today to share her experiences. Thank you so much, Holly, for joining us. Thank you. Happy to be here. So we find ourselves in an unprecedented environment at this time, as most of the globe is under lockdown owing to the spread of of COVID-19. Holly, I wanted to ask you, do you have any thoughts based on your own experience as to how other people um, who might be experiencing stalking might be feeling in this current environment? Yeah, and it's an interesting question um, because someone actually put this to me recently and said, um, oh, if, you know, if this was when you went through your stalking, um, you'd be fine now because we're all under lockdown. And actually that shows a sort of naivety uh, around what stalking is, um, particularly in my case when most of it was done um, online through emails or WhatsApps and or, or um, text messages. So actually in my situation it wouldn't really have made any difference and i would have still gone through the same sort of experience so i don't think that uh, being under lockdown will stop uh, stalkers or stalking um in fact i imagine there'd be a lot more activity going on um online rather than sort of uh, in person but that just highlights the fact that this is very much um something that affects you psychologically whether or not a stalker is physically um nearby um and most people don't understand that still thank you holly i i, I mean absolutely we we run the national stalking helpline and, and and we hear repeatedly this is a crime about fixation and obsession and perpetrators don't stay away when often they've got injunctions or they're being told there are criminal sanctions in place um, to, to keep them away. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that this environment, therefore, um, will, will, will stop that, that fixa- fixation and obsession, sadly. Roxanne, do you have any thoughts on, on, on how the response to COVID-19 might be impacting victims of stalking? Well, I, I've worried about the same things that you're talking about in that partly because victims are stuck at home, then either they could be at increased risk if their stalker is somebody with whom they live, or because they have a bigger digital footprint, um, they're being obliged even um, through work about having to uh, uh, communicate more using social media, or perhaps they're uh, relying more on social media, that actually that may create um, more vulnerability either in the stalker finding out things or uh, in being exposed to more barrages of text or emails or so on. When I think about stalkers who may have ordinarily been at work and are now on furlough, then they have more time uh, and that can actually increase the danger. I was uh, talking with uh, an advisor the other day who said that the calls were less and she was hoping that that was because people were feeling safer, um, knowing that the stalker couldn't move around publicly uh, so easily. But as Holly has clearly said, it could in fact mean the opposite. The other thing that has occurred to me from a psychological perspective is that even if people are safe and that the stalking has stopped, being trapped at home 
Um, the whole anxiety around COVID could be triggering some of the same feelings or the same memories and therefore um, uh, creating more post-traumatic stress because the fear is a reminder of what it was like because um, there are cues of being stuck at home or being alone um, that trigger past memories of a stalking history. The other, the other thing I would add is that uh, from my own experience, there is no logic or common sense when it comes to stalkers. So even in a situation where we're in lockdown and everyone is um, by law required to be at home, I don't believe that would deter a stalker who wanted to go and physically uh, stalk someone um, or follow them if that's what they were determined to do, because um, you know, the, their behaviour is not something that would be considered normal or law-abiding in many cases. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I'm just, just touching on a point that both of you picked on, given that most, um, most people are more online because we're doing more of our work online, and, and touching on that point, Roxanne, you said about triggering trauma, um, how... How can how can this be managed? Do we do we think this could be making the situation worse, particularly for those who are then also being cyber stalked or a large element of the stalking is online? Well, I think there's some practical advocacy things about how to uh, check the security um, settings on their phone, or um, uh, as you were saying um, uh, earlier about SLT to be aware that services are still operating and that from a psychological perspective that the one of the worst most negative predictors is being alone and so it's more important to reach out and to get help from specialist services or from the police or uh, rather than to give up speaking to friends or family or uh, work colleagues to try and stop the risk. Thank you, Roxanne. And, and Holly, is there anything that, that you would add in terms of um, advice for anyone who might be experiencing at this mo- in this particular environment, but also to their, to their family or friends or colleagues, given what some people have said to you? Yeah, I think, first of all, um, any victims of stalking should make use of all the help and online resources available, um, whether that's a National Stalking Helpline um, or other support networks or um, looking to the police for support when they're engaged and and needed. Um, But I think, yeah, maintaining contact with family and friends, um, using video calls wherever you can if you're feeling lonely or isolated or in any way uncomfortable, um, that's definitely a lifeline. Thank you both for that that great advice and 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 to reiterate the National Stalking Helpline is open. So if any of our listeners do feel that they are experiencing um, stalking or would like to speak to someone, then please do get in touch with us. So 2020 marks the 10 year anniversary of the National Stalking Helpline. And in that time, we've spoken to over 35,000 victims of stalking who have told us about the impact that stalking has had on their lives. We know that it can have a physical impact sadly often physical violence, sexual violence. We know it can have a substantial social impact, victims not feeling able to go go out, to carry out their um, daily activities. We know the impact that it has on uh, their their friends, their family, their children, uh, their work, not being able to to carry out their their day-to-day work. And of course, the the psychological impact, which is the the focus on on today's discussion in a, in a recent report that we carried out 91 percent reported mental health problems following stalking following being, experiencing stalking holly can i ask you first um would you mind telling us a little bit about your your particular um, experience and the impact that it had on um, on your life and particularly uh, the emotional and psychological impact 
Yes, of course. Um, my situation was with an ex-boyfriend of mine. Um, I'd been in a only a two-month relationship with him. Um, he ended the relationship, um, and it was a normal breakup at first. And then a couple of months later, he made contact with me and wanted to meet up for coffee to have a chat with me about various things. So I agreed to meet for coffee, um, but declined the offer of dinner. So it was almost as if I already knew that something wasn't quite right. Um, we did meet for coffee and he um, told me that he wanted us to get back together and spend more time together. Um, I made it very clear at this point that that's not what I wanted and that uh, whilst I'd agreed to see him on this occasion, I didn't want to see him again. Uh, and that was that, um, or so I thought. Um, and then um, at first I was just getting text messages and WhatsApp messages begging me to reconsider and to see him again and um, how sorry he was and they were very emotive and um, really tugged on the heartstrings and at first I was patient and polite um, and didn't really think anything of it um, and was just really saying you know I don't want to see you again um, let's just leave it and you need to get some help. Um, but he became more and more persistent and it got to the point where um, the WhatsApp messages were coming through constantly. Um, I had to keep turning my phone on silent and telling my friends and family to use my landline um, because I couldn't bear to look at my phone. Um, I tried every tactic from um, replying and being polite to him, to replying and being quite nasty and harsh, to ask him to leave me alone, and nothing was working. And meanwhile, I was feeling this kind of rising anxiety. Um, just even looking at my phone made me feel very on edge. And people started telling me after about a week or so, you know, you need to do something about this. Because um, if he wasn't WhatsApping, he was texting. If he wasn't texting, he was emailing. Um, but he, at this point, as far as I'm aware, he wasn't physically coming to, to see me. So I sort of thought, no, you know, I'm not going to do anything about it. He'll leave me alone soon. Um, but he didn't. And uh, eventually I searched online and found the National Stalking Helpline, thank goodness, um, who I contacted, um, emailed them with a, a brief synopsis of what was going on and was uh, responded to fairly quickly with very clear advice about uh, ceasing contact and uh, involving the police. But I was reluctant to do this. Um, looking back already, I was having, um, I was experiencing already victim's guilt and I didn't want to involve the police. I thought I was overreacting or misunderstanding um, and uh, I didn't want to get this guy into trouble. Um, but it got to the point where I was um, scared to leave home. I was looking over my shoulder the whole time. Um, and eventually I did contact the police um, because I couldn't bear another day of being bombarded with um, emails and WhatsApps where the tone was becoming more sinister and it was just uh, nonsensical and ridiculous and very distressing. So I contacted the police and um, thanks to the help of the uh, stalking unit um, working with the police, I was um, put through to the, the right um, safeguarding unit within the police to deal with my case uh, fairly quickly after a bit of a shaky start. And I was assigned a detective um, who remained my contact throughout. Um, and the detective gave me his mobile phone number and I already had an, an advocate um, at the stalking unit um, by this point. So I soon realised that this had escalated again and that he must be following me now. Um, and the police at this point attempted arrest and were unsuccessful the first night um, and told me to come to the police station next day to make a statement. Um, the next day I went down to my car, which was in a, a gated secure car park and found a card on my windscreen, which my ex had left me a handwritten card. So by this point, I was so terrified that I couldn't even open this card um, on my own um, until I got to family members uh, when I was able to sit down with them and open this card. Um, went to the police station, gave my first statement. And uh, at this point, the police came round to see me that evening. Um, my ex was arrested that evening and uh, subsequently charged with um, 
Section 4A stalking, um, which is the most serious stalking offence, um, and charged. Um, he was remanded for two months, uh, sent to prison. Uh, he was then granted bail, and um, he was out on bail. I know that he breached his bail restrictions, but unfortunately there was nothing that could be done. Um, did not receive a, a further prison sentence, um, but a restraining order was put in place for life. Um, during this time, from a psychological point of view, I struggled greatly. I, I went to see my GP soon after he was arrested and was diagnosed with PTSD. Um, at this point, I was very anxious and unable to go out without feeling panicky. Um, if people looked at me in a certain way, I felt quite threatened. Um, my overwhelming desire was to move, to emigrate, to literally be able to disappear. Um, and um, I um, went to see my GP and also um, had uh, several sessions of CBT therapy, um, which was online therapy, um, but to be honest, it didn't really help me. Um, and I just had to really heal over time. Um, it's been a year now, and I'd say I'm sort of 80% over this ordeal but the um long-term psychological effects definitely remain with me um but i want something good to come out of my experience by educating others and um highlighting all the support and help that is available to help people through and also for people to realize that stalking is something that doesn't necessarily happen over years and years. For me, it was a very short time frame, but the effect was very profound that it had on me. Thank you so much, Holly, for sharing that that with us. I, I, I think, as you said, people often underestimate the, the impact it can have even over such a short period of time. Could you, would you mind just telling us a little bit around, you were receiving these, these um, messages, these texts these letters so how how many were you receiving in in any given day or any or any period um i'd wake up in the morning and would have you know between 20 and 30 whatsapp messages um it was mainly whatsapp and um during the day countless you know dozens and dozens of messages all day um when um when i blocked him on whatsapp the email started so um i was receiving emails from five different email addresses uh, some of which my ex had set up specifically to uh contact me there could be pages of emails um to the point where i'd have screen grabs of my phone and it was only his name on whatsapps or texts or emails so it was it felt like an overwhelming bombardment of different types of communication at any one time. I, I asked the question because often we find when victims call the helpline and we are trying to perhaps advocate on their behalf with other professionals and we say there's been calls, there's been emails, there's been texts, often it's not understood just how all-encompassing that is and um, the extent to which it can infiltrate every aspect of your life when you when you in terms of the number the volume but also the content and the type um, of, of messages that you're receiving and it sounds like as you were saying that you were constantly um, on alert and in terms of some of those other behaviors were they were they every day was it consistent and persistent for that that period of time no and i think that's what made it harder um, first of all, to your first point, um, I had some people in my life saying things like, just ignore him, like ignore, just ignore him, you know, just stop, stop reading them all, stop, because I was sending them to friends and family, it got to the point where people were like, you know, what's he done now, and I'd send them over and people would say, at the beginning, they'd say, just, you know, just ignore it and stop sending them, you're obsessing over it. Um, and then uh, there were a couple of times when I got messages and communication that made, gave me hope that it was about to stop, where it seemed that my ex was having moments of clarity and would send these long, apologetic, eloquently written emails and messages about how sorry he was for having caused me distress and that he'd leave me alone now. Um, and then there'd be silence for maybe a day, day and a half. So it would lull me into this false sense of security that, oh, it's over now. I knew it would be over. I knew it would stop. 
and then it would start again and the tone would change. And it was this, um, it was a, a combination of the different types of communication that he was using, the fluctuating tone, depending on what mood he was in, um, and also the not knowing uh, what I was going to hear next and from where. And I got to the point where even the ping of a text message would make me jump. Um, I had to turn off all the sound alerts for my emails um, because I was on such a high state of um, anxiety at this point that um, I couldn't deal with basic things. I remember the postman came round once and there was and he was bound, pounding on my door because he was delivering a package and I was cowering at the other side of my flat, terrified, um, because I thought it was my ex who'd come to see me and it was just the postman, but this is the effect it had had in quite a short space of time. Thank you, Holly. Um, really appreciate you sharing sharing that your experiences with us. Roxanne, can I ask you, could you tell us a bit more about sort of the general patterns you've seen um, when working with, with victims, with survivors, um, and the sort of emotional and psychological impact of stalking and, and these particular behaviours um, that they have on victims? Sure. One of the things uh, perhaps to start with is what's the difference between emotional and psychological? because sometimes they get used interchangeably or sometimes people are only asked about their feelings whereas understanding what happens to people's psychological well-being I think is is really uh, a, a bit different. The, that psychological means thoughts, feelings and behaviour. So um, how uh, Holly was thinking, for example, when she heard the banging in the door, is that's the postman, was thoughts that then impacted on her feelings and increased the fear. And um, uh, Holly's been describing different sorts of behaviours, including cowering behind the sofa, or uh, um, perhaps other people would talk about not going out. Um, and what's important is that the, the, the thoughts, feelings and behaviour start interacting with each other. So it's not only about the stalker's behaviour and that unpredictability and that bombardment, but it is also how I think, for example, that I'm being followed to work, which makes me then frightened which then means that I don't go to work. So then, because I'm behaving that way, then I'm more lonely. And um, when I'm isolated and inactive, then I don't have the stimulation or the company that I would normally have. It starts to change um, somebody's identity and, is, and just being at home uh, uh, can mean that people get more depressed. So... Um, uh, when I was listening to Holly talking, it, it very much fits with a lot of research that has been done on the psychological impacts um, or on victims of stalking, that that initial anxiety can often build and build and as the harassment or the pattern continues, becomes uh, as severe as panic or um, um, uh, what some women talk to me is about being on red alert, that they are constantly waiting for the next bad thing to happen and um, easily startled, jumping at the, the slightest noise. So there's a whole cluster of things around fear or anxiety. The research also um, shows that Many victims of stalking will talk about feeling sad, upset, low. When they go and see their doctors, they're often diagnosed with depression. Um, and uh, so there's a whole cluster of things uh, about that. Um, and then, um, as Holly described so clearly, um, many people when they see their GP, will be diagnosed with either depression or anxiety. Mostly GPs are not as sophisticated as, as Holly's was about identifying post-traumatic stress immediately. Um, 
so a lot of victims will be given antidepressants or tranquilizers without recognizing the context of that uh, depression or anxiety is actually based on what's happening in the outside world. Another thing um, uh, perhaps that Holly didn't mention, I'm interested to, to know if she had it too, is that a lot of people will talk about not being able to sleep um, having nightmares or um, uh, being unable to relax and as a function of that really to self-medicate people will drink more or, or use drugs and um, the psychological well-being will also be impacted because they're cutting off from family and friends. When family become impatient and say, don't send me those messages anymore or get over it, then one of the characteristics, in fact, of, of PTSD is feeling that nobody understands or feeling different from everybody else. And so it can impact socially. Um, in in various sorts of ways. For instance, if I'm afraid to go out, then I'm not seeing so many friends, I become more lonely. If my family are blaming me or become impatient uh, because of the distress, then it's also really negatively impacting on my relationships. And um, even in a recent study on cyberstalking, then the researchers found several groups of things. One was about the impact on on physical health, not just mental health, but physical health like headaches, um, not wanting to eat, or eating too much, or stomach aches, or um, and then there are social consequences like. Uh, feeling isolated or feeling angry and irritable, so falling out with people, having more arguments, um, or losing interest in daily activities. And then there's a group of things about how it can affect um, people being able to succeed or manage or meet their goals. You know, many people have talked to me about how much their self-esteem have suffered and partly that that can come from what Holly was talking in terms of guilt and self-doubt and it must be me and maybe I'm overreacting or what have I done to deserve this. But self-esteem is also about being able to um, meet my goals, know what I'm, uh, know where I'm going, what I'm doing um, uh, and they can be affected by stalking too. So when people are either working or at school, then um, it can mean that they lose concentration, they're preoccupied about the stalking, uh, they miss deadlines, um, maybe they miss work or exams, um, they uh, are much less likely to perform as they normally would or be less able to meet their potential. And that contributes to the self-doubt and um, uh, in, a, in another sort of vicious cycle and all of that contributes to what I would call psychological distress. Yeah, just um, addressing your point about um, sleep problems, etc. So um, when I went to see my GP um, and he very quickly diagnosed PTSD because of all the um, symptoms and um, the way I was coming across and I wasn't sleeping at all. Um, I'm not really a drinker, but I was having a glass of wine at least every night. Um, he prescribed me sleeping pills because I was unable to sleep or I was having nightmares. Um, the, a lot of anxiety was at night because that's when I was getting most of the communication and also I was dreading wake, waking up in the morning and seeing you know, what would await me in terms of further contact. Um, I lost my appetite, uh, so I wasn't eating properly. And I had this strange thing that went on for several months, which is I can only describe of uh, looking in the mirror and not really seeing myself, um, not really feeling present in any way. Um, I struggled with going out. Uh, so uh, for, for most of the year, 
I would only go out with uh, small groups of very close friends and it had to only be to places I was comfortable with. Um, so the cinema, someone's house or a local restaurant. Uh, I wasn't going to parties or bars. Um, and the other things I experienced and still do are um, being somewhere and thinking that I can see my ex. Um, it happens less now at the beginning. It was uh, frequently on an almost daily basis, seeing people that I thought was him, uh, even seeing people that I thought was his parents. And a year on from this incident in my life, uh, this, the effects are definitely still very real and have manifested in different ways. Um, thankfully, I'm in a new healthy relationship now, but I still struggle with uh, trust issues, with feeling that people still don't understand me. Um, and what I went through and the long-lasting and profound effect it's had and feeling quite numb of emotion a lot of the time as well with people. Um, as Holly was talking, it, it um, made me realise that a lot of people um, that I have talked to have not understood that feeling that you were uh, describing about looking in the mirror and not really feeling like yourself or feeling distant. And and some people um, will talk about feeling numb or like a zombie or just going through the motions or detached. And that's a, a very uh, important psychological protection mechanism that we call dissociation, um, whereby when the bombardment, when the feelings are overwhelming, the body tries to protect ourselves. It's a bit like the physical equivalent of fainting when the pain is too much to bear that we start to dissociate or switch off um, become distant so either the world doesn't feel very real or we don't feel very well uh, real and it's um it's a mechanism to try and protect ourselves and yet uh, uh, it can be very disturbing and and mean that people feel that they are going mad. One of the troubles with general mental health services is that when they start giving people labels like anxiety or depression is that it feeds in to victims thinking there is something wrong with me. Um, whereas I think one of the really important diagnostic labels of post-traumatic stress is that it explains that any normal, ordinary, healthy person who is exposed to abnormal things will have a reaction. And so when we're talking about, for instance, a victim having anxiety or fear or panic that isn't a dysfunction, that isn't a failure of their physiology, that is a healthy reaction to being in real danger. Um, equally, when um, people have a diagnosis of depression, a victim can feel worse or somehow guilty that, that they have let it get to them. But I believe depression in this context means several things. One is the person is sad about what has happened to them. Um, they may be grieving um, the life that they had before the stalking happened. Um, they may have had their world shrink either because they don't go out the same way or in a relaxed way and one of the things that would make any healthy person feel lower in mood or more down is being stuck at home, not being active, not having so much social contact. So I think it's really important that we understand those reactions in terms of a healthy response to being in danger or having to deal with what is happening in the outside world. Roxanne, um, you touched a little bit on 
on PTSD, a, a report um, launched um, by the Trust in conjunction with the National Stalking Consortium found that 78% of victims of stalking um, from that research had shown symptoms consistent with PTSD. Can you tell us a bit more about what PTSD is and why is it so prevalent? Why are we potentially seeing this in victims of stalking? Let me talk a little bit about what PTSD is, first of all, and then I would be um, interested if uh, either Holly or people indeed listening would recognise some of these different signs. Um, When I talk about it, I tend to drop the D. I don't think disorder is helpful. Um, It is medicalising or pathologising something that I think is actually much better understood as a reaction to um, something very bad that has happened. The World Health Organization have recently revised their definition of post-traumatic stress, that it is classified as a disorder that may develop following exposure to an extremely threatening or horrific event or series of events. So the first stage is exposure to threatening or horrifying things. Clearly, stalking fits into that category. And then it will be characterized by three sets of symptoms, what I would call signs. The first group of signs is that people re-experience or relive the traumatic events or happenings. That can be remembering it or thinking about it or uh, flashbacks when literally people feel as if they're reliving it again in the present. And it can also be in nightmares. So um, that may be um, remembering a particular scene or remembering a particular message and tone of voice. And when people have those memories that pop up without any conscious control, it will it will almost always cause very strong physical reactions like feeling terrified or uh, feeling sick or having very strong uh, physical um, uh, uh, signs associated with that. Then the second group of signs are about, because of those feelings being horrible, trying to avoid them. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to remember it. I don't want to talk about it. And um, that may be avoiding things that are reminders, such as going to the same place uh, where um, a victim had met a stalker or avoiding situations that um, are associated with threat or avoiding certain people. For instance, let's say the stalker has made contact with some colleagues or um, uh, threatened um, particular friends, then the victim may want to avoid those. So one part of the avoidance is conscious and deliberate in um, albeit driven by post-traumatic stress. And the other can be unconscious. We talked a little bit about dissociation and that's not in somebody's control. Um, People find that they've just switched off or gone numb. And then the third um, group of signs is what the um, WHO have defined as persistent perceptions of heightened current threat. So it's not rocket science, is it? That actually, if people have experienced um, stalking, uh, especially threatening messages, of course, they're going to feel threatened. And um, one of the ways that that shows is that it's the red alert that we were talking about. Um, We call it hypervigilance in the trade where 
people are particularly sensitive to noise, to light, um, to danger. Um, Holly was describing about watching people and thinking that um, she saw them. There's a, there's a very clear example of hypervigilance. What defines post-traumatic stress is that it stays after a month and it has a significant impact on people's ability to function or their, their, the way that they're coping day to day. Um, we talked a little bit about how it can impact on um, socialising, on work, uh, on school. Um, it affects people inside personally and it may affect their relationships. So that is um, straight or simple PTSD, but in fact, particularly for for victims of interpersonal abuse or victims of t- stalking, they are much more likely to have something that is called complex PTSD. And um, complex post-traumatic stress is really a new concept because it's recognising that people who've gone through a series of events day after day, week after week, most commonly it's prolonged or repetitive events from which escape is either difficult or impossible. Um, so that's a different level of trauma than a simple um, single trauma like a car accident or even something like an earthquake. It happens and then it's over. Um, it goes on for a very long time. And the signs of complex PTSD are the three groups that I talked about already. So reliving it, trying to avoid it, uh, feeling under threat. But there are three other groups that um, are characterizing complex PTSD. One is difficulty controlling emotion. It's called problems in regulating affect. So I might get suddenly upset or uh, feel afraid or um, be irritable. It's particularly hard, I think, for victims of stalking when they don't have um, a, a, a specific person that they can talk to directly face to face. That, that most pe- victims of stalking like Holly have said, I want no more contact. Um, so what, what do they then do with that anger? Generally, it sits inside and implodes, uh, uh, but it can leak out. The second um, group of complex post-traumatic stress is changes in beliefs about oneself. They're often uh, uh, accompanied by feelings of shame or guilt or failure. Um, victims will ask themselves, why has this happened to me? Or surely um, I should have done something different or I should have coped better. Or um, maybe I shouldn't have gone in that date in the first place. So they are more prone to self-blame or to guilt or to shame. And the third group, um, as Holly was describing about that difficulty in trusting, is difficulty in sustaining relationships or feeling close to others. For victims of stalking, that's often made worse by the reaction of other people. And that may be people in their family or their friends who are impatient or or indeed uh, blameful. Or it may be um, professionals letting them down. Um, and so all of those have a knock-on effect in their capacity to trust people. So again, all those clusters of signs may affect people's ability to cope with day-to-day life. They uh, may not socialise, manage as well at work, feel the same as they did about themselves or relate to people in the same way. So it has very serious long-term effects that uh, don't just stop when the stalking stops but 
can take months or even years to recover. Thank you, Roxanne. I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is actually a lot of victims of stalking will possibly fall into the, the complex PTSD category, in fact, because by its very nature, stalking is often prolonged, it's it's repetitive, um, and it's it's as 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 Holly was saying, it's everywhere, it's 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 omnipresent, it's difficult to escape. Um and again I would want to emphasize that complex PTSD is based on exposure to a series of prolonged, threatening, horrific experiences. It isn't a failure of the person that they then develop those signs. It's because of what they have been through. I can uh, personally identify with most of the things that you've talked about with specific examples. Um, in terms of sort of avoidance, uh, the, for, for many months, I couldn't bear anyone to refer to him by name. Uh, I couldn't bear to hear his name, read it anywhere. Um, I had to tell everyone to refer to him as my ex. I couldn't say his name. Um, I became quite paranoid, um, generally paranoid about um, people talking about me, even people close to me. I didn't want people discussing my situation between them. And I'm talking about my closest friends. I was paranoid about. Um, I was avoiding places that I used to go to on a regular basis on my high street. Um, the hypervigilance for me manifested itself with feeling like every time I left my home and got in my car, like I was entering battle. And I was in my car, I was constantly looking around, always seeing cars like his car or people who looked like him. Um, I became, and still am, quite... Um, aware of uh, policemen, police sirens all the time. I hear sirens and it sort of uh, reminds me of everything still. And I became quite obsessed with um, anything to do with stalking, stalking victims, um, court cases. Um, I was researching things constantly online about going to court and court cases and barristers and the whole process was so confusing and unknown to me that I became obsessed with trying to understand every single intricacy of what happened in a court proceeding because it gave me a sense of being a bit more in control. Um, and in terms of the sort of complex PTSD, uh, I definitely feel like I am a changed person now and always will be because of my experience and that I'll never really get over it. I'll just um, learn to deal with it better. Um, but uh, I do have some of the issues around um, generally feeling different as a person, um, feeling differently about myself as well. And this uh, difficulty in controlling emotion, which can happen at any time. And people will say to me, what's wrong? And I can't explain it. And I do think all these things relate back to the experience that I went through and that there is a general lack of support amongst professionals um, because there's a lack of understanding um, with um, therapists in general about stalking and the effect on victims to the point where I had 10 CBT sessions with the NHS and and um, each time I was scored, um, they did depression and anxiety questionnaires each week. And uh, at the end of the 10th session, she said, your scores have got worse every week and there's nothing I can do to help you. So being told that, um, you know, at a stage where I really needed that help, and not being able to find specialist support groups online or chat rooms or anything that you might find for people with addiction issues or you know rape victims or um, other types of crime which is more understood and widely publicised. I felt and still feel very alone as a stalking victim and have felt that I've, I've struggled and battled to deal with this by myself um, because there's just a lack of either a lack of awareness of what's available. Once you finish that whole process of, you know, going through the court process and having the support from the police and the stalking unit, and then you sort of just left back into society. And it, that's what's very difficult. I was thinking as you were talking that people misunderstand what it means for it to be over. It is um, one of the weaknesses talking about um, the label of post-traumatic stress because post is Latin for after and many people that I've talked to 
um, don't have a clear before and after. In fact, um, they can be confused that they can feel worse after the court case is over or after the stalking has stopped. And yet, for me, there is a fairly valid reason why people may get worse depression or anxiety scores. When people are trying to survive day to day, when it is actually happening, then part of that avoidance is about numbing out, dumbing um, dumbing it all down, just trying to focus on what has to be done. So people go into a very practical coping mode. Um, that dissociation or being a bit detached from it all um, uh, is another sign of that. And it is really only when people start to feel safe again that they can let the feelings out. It's not that the feelings have got worse. It's that part of the healing process is that the feelings have been buried and then start to come out and be released. And that's actually a healthy thing. Thanks, Roxanne. Holly, can I just um, come back to a little bit of what you were saying um, and around your experience of, of accessing support, particularly around um, the mental health? So you said you 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 went you went to your GP, um, and it sounded like that, that it was it was it was responsive, but you had a mixed experience with with. With, with the CBT. Could you just tell us a little bit more around um, your experience and, and do you think there is enough support available in terms of that, that mental health management for victims of stalking? Yeah, I mean, I was very lucky that I had a GP who was very empathetic. <clears throat> My GP was very understanding of what I'd been through and um, immediately prescribed me with um, antidepressants um, to try and get me on the straight and narrow and feeling more balanced to cope with everyday life. Uh, he referred me for um, online CBT um, and gave me some sleeping pills. Um, so, and he, he immediately diagnosed the PTSD, which again was very useful and valuable evidence in court. Um, my CBT session started within probably three weeks or so. So I didn't have a long wait. Um, and it was once a week, it was online chat uh, through text chat, it wasn't spoken. And I found this um, quite unusual to get used to uh, having any type of therapy in this way. Um, I had requested a therapist who might have an understanding of stalking, but of course that couldn't be guaranteed. And um, I had two different therapists over the course of the 10 week session. Um, so that didn't help matters either. That had to start from scratch halfway through. Um, I don't feel that they really understood uh, what I'd been through. One of the pieces of advice I was given was to walk up and down past my ex's flat um, and um, find the strength to do that a couple of times um, because she said that I was um, avoiding so much that she needed to help me face the situation that, that she thought this would be a really good thing for me to do. Um, I agreed to try it and then uh, when it came to that day I realised there was absolutely no way that I could do this and um, I think I mentioned it to a friend of mine who um, is in the healthcare profession and was quite horrified. Um, and and as, as I said, these scores were getting worse and worse and her words at the end was, I can't help you, your scores are getting worse. Uh, you need time for this uh, situation to process before you're really able to um, have therapy and for therapy to benefit you. So you need probably another month after this and then come back to us. Uh, I didn't go back to them. I then saw a private therapist once a week who I paid for. Um, but again, this was not someone who was specialised or understood stalking. Um, it didn't really help me. And I, f I have felt that there's not really been the support that I have needed throughout the whole process from the beginning until the present day, to be honest, um, because I'm still experiencing after effects and would love the right sort of help but I kind of gave up because I just don't think it's out there right now and there's a real need for 
um, stalking support groups uh, victims to help other victims um, for you know specialist therapists who understand stalking and know how to treat victims of stalking and advise them and I haven't found any of this available and I've really looked um, quite hard to find this. Thank you Holly I mean I, I have to say that um very troubling some of the advice that, that you've been offered um, uh, very worrying um particularly in the in the context of stalking and, and we know that you know some of the first most critical and crucial advice we would always say is to not engage and, and cease that contact from from the perpetrator so really really worrying um and, and i have to say that much of what you're saying echoes what a lot of um, victims sadly tell us on the, on the national helpline that there just isn't that that support often available and that understanding of, of of the experience so often there's a disconnect between the services being offered um, and really understanding the context and the environment in which the, the crime is is ongoing um, and Roxanne this kind of brings me on to some of the work that you're currently doing with us at the Trust and Holly you might be interested to, to, to hear some of the new developments. Um, so Roxanne's been working with us to develop a new training model for trauma-informed stalking advocacy um, through which we hope to have trauma-informed specialist stalking psychological advocates spas bit of a mouthful and this is based on the um on an on the evidence-based path model roxanne that, that you've obviously um uh, uh, worked um uh, to develop could you could you explain what a, a bit about what this is all about sure um you were talking earlier about finding that 78 percent of the people who'd um taken part in your study had um, post-traumatic stress but actually um, they are not getting the help that they need in health services and I'm delighted to work with Susie Lamplew Trust. Um, after some work that I have done previously on developing uh, a psychological model to support victims of domestic violence and so what we are doing this year is adapting materials um, and a manual that I wrote for PATH into something that is specifically to support um, uh, advocates who will be working with victims of stalking so that victims get better help than they have had before. Thank you, Roxanne. And just to sort of contextualize this because obviously there's there's an absence of, of of what we're seeing in terms of um victims being able to access the right sort of psychological therapy what does this add is this instead of or or is this in in conjunction with it is definitely to supplement and not instead of that um when victims are a whole person when they have things happening on the outside world and things happening on the inside world. What um, is valuable, we believe, is that they get help with both of those things and that they get help with both of those things from the same person rather than having to go and, and try and find somebody who can help them with the inside world so that a stalking advisor will become a specialist um, stalking psychological advocate or a, a spa and we'll be able to say let's talk about your inside world today so that the healing or strengthening the person can go hand in hand with doing the practical advocacy and the partnership work to stop the stalking happen. Thank you that that's great Roxanne. Holly having heard some of this work that's underway uh, would be interested to hear what some of your your views and thoughts are on this um from my point of view um i think it's excellent news that um it's been recognized and is being dealt with that uh, stalking victims need more specialist support and ongoing support and that the needs will change throughout the process and afterwards. Um, I had a lot of people saying to me, um, it's over now, you can get on with your life. Um, literally once sentencing day was over, it's almost as if people were saying to me, uh, don't talk about this anymore, like we've had enough. So uh, the continuation of the impact has been 
very solitary for me um, because I felt that I burdened people in my life so much while the stalking was going on and that um, you know I have a sense of guilt around how awful it was for those close to me as well as me that I don't feel comfortable talking about it anymore because I feel I should be over it um, like everyone's telling me I should be because it's actually stopped and the police activity stopped and the stalking unit um, activity stopped so it's almost as if I was supposed to draw a line under it and move move on um which of course is what exactly what i wanted to do but it's not that easy um i think it's very interesting what roxanne said about the ongoing effects and how uh, this can change and how you might only process things much later on and i can very much identify that with that um, but no one has sort of made that clear to me at the time um, which is why if the specialist support available i think that's you know that's an excellent step in improving the understanding of stalking and the effect on victims and helping them in the most appropriate way thanks holly and we're certainly very excited about the pilot and we look forward to sharing the findings with our listeners in in due course holly is there any advice that you would like to give to those who might be experiencing stalking particularly around trying to managing the the impact i would encourage anyone who feels that um, their situation is a stalking situation or suspects it may be to go onto the National Stalking Helpline website um, to read up on all the advice there and to contact them either by phone or email. Um, they were a lifeline to me. Um, I was assigned someone specific and uh, she supported me through everything from the initial advice she gave me about involving the police to uh, explaining the whole court process, um, being available any time that I needed either help or advice or just really someone to talk to. Without the National Stalking Helpline, I don't think I would have found the strength on my own or the knowledge to know what was available to me in terms of police support, um, support from the advocates of the National Stalking Unit, um, and also to be able to understand the process I would go through in dealing with the police and the court system. Um, and even after my case was finished, I maintained a relationship with my contact from the National Stalking Helpline because we built up such a strong relationship um, during everything that I went through. One of the most invaluable pieces of advice that I was given by the National Stalking Helpline when I first contacted them was to start keeping a diary of um, everything that was happening, but also about how I was feeling and to keep this regularly updated. Um, and this was something that became invaluable, not only from the point of view of providing evidence to the police, uh, which was read out in court and was used as part of my victim personal statement, but more so for myself and to be able to get my feelings out on paper and to be able to really describe what I was going Going through and how I was feeling and subsequently to have people close to me, friends and family read extracts of this to really understand the impact of the stalking on me and on a daily basis to see how it was impacting my mental health and my state of mind. Thank, thank you Holly and, and Roxanne is there anything from your perspective that, that you would like to add? Well if I had five top tips, um, the first I think would be to be patient um, with yourself. You know, my rule of thumb, although I don't want to freak Holly out, would be two years rather than um, expecting it all to be over now. Um, and and not to be afraid of therapy. That I I see therapy as a growth opportunity, not as um that there's something wrong um and you know if we want our hair cut we go to a hairdresser so i think people who um are struggling to manage thoughts and feelings have the right to get therapeutic support um and i would say that it's okay to shop around until they find the right person um 
not to feel that if I've tried one therapist uh, and it didn't work, then it's no good like Holly to find somebody else. One of my other tips would be not just to think about the outside world and the stalker, but also that the inside world is important and that people have the right to rebuild. Holly said, um, I will never be the same. And it put me in mind of a Japanese art form um, uh, whose name for me is unpronounceable, but in English um, has been described the art of embracing scars. It came from, um, I believe, a story where an emperor broke a favourite porcelain bowl. And when it smashed, he was very upset. And the artisans around him put it together with very fine gold leaf. And the emperor liked the bowl even better. It was more beautiful and it was stronger. So my message would be not to be looking to be the same, but to to celebrate um, your courage, your wisdom, your learning, your knowledge about the world and who you are. It has taken a very brave person to come through it the way that you have already, uh, Holly. And um, <clears throat> perhaps also not to be afraid of feelings, that feeling afraid, feeling angry are very healthy reactions to being stalked and when people say that you shouldn't feel them or you feel guilty about feeling them, on the contrary, I would say, don't be suppressing them or ignoring them. Um, and similarly, not to be afraid of the memories, that they come back even after the stalking is over because you have the right to process your thoughts and feelings about what happened. And that is part of the healing, not to feel ashamed or guilty or embarrassed because bad things happen to good people but it's what you do with them that really defines the person that you are um, to remember that post-traumatic stress is a normal ordinary healthy reaction and the shame the guilt lies with the stalker not with the victim Thank you, Roxanne. And, and I have to say just a, a huge thank you to you both for sharing your, uh, your, your wonderful thoughts and, and, and Holly for sharing those experiences. Um, I have no doubt it's going to be really invaluable um, for our listeners. So thank you. If any of our listeners have any questions based on what has been discussed today or you believe that you may be experiencing stalking, then please get in touch through the Susie Lamplew Trust website, which is susielamplew.org or contact the National Stalking Helpline. Thank you again for listening. All the episodes of See Stalking Clearly are available through the website. Thanks again.